0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better,
1: Tim. It's a fantastic day. We have a fantastic interview about a subject that I didn't think I would ever be swayed to enjoy. But I am 95% on the side of uh, that enjoyment level now. Um, So that makes me feel good. Hope everyone
0: out there is doing great. How are you, Tim, though? How are you? You're sitting there on your beach, your virtual beach? Yeah. Oh, the virtual beach is real nice today, Lance. And uh, I'm doing well over here. And I love this conversation as well. Uh, We definitely made some jokes about how you uh, have spoken out publicly about how you don't appreciate the D.B. Cooper um, constant drip. The mystery. Yeah, yeah. The lore, the
1: D.B. Cooper lore I wasn't on board with for a long time.
0: Well, I get it. I mean, it's a historical thing, and you know we're we're pretty victim focused with our true crime cases over here, and this one is victimless, you know, so it kind of is out of our uh wheel our natural wheelhouse, I guess I'll say. but it is fun to delve into these um historical mysteries like d b Cooper. On Thanksgiving Eve in 1971, a man calling himself Dan Cooper skyjacked a Northwest Orient flight traveling from Portland to Seattle, and our guest Lance, Eric Eulis, has investigated the case for about 14 years. And I read that right from his website at ericulis.com. He's got a ton of information about the case there.
1: And he delivers some nuggets of information during this interview that most people might not know if you haven't dug in as deep as he's dug in on the D.B. Cooper disappearance and the hijacking itself, including, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but during this interview, I realized why I didn't like D.B. Cooper. And it's not about D.B. Cooper at all. It's about Treat Williams. So there's that in this interview. Uh, It was a refreshing moment personally for me. It felt like a weight was lifted, uh, and I was able to enjoy that again.
0: How very random, Lance. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you are able to enjoy it again and uh this conversation again is is really great. And yeah, Eric does come with some breaking news. So, uh make sure to follow Eric on social media. There are some links in the show notes and there's also Coopercon coming up in 2022 and uh, and Eric has written a report on the DB Cooper case it's called Sky Ghost you can get your copy today at EricUlis.com. and
1: if you like what you hear from Eric on the DB Cooper disappearance and and the whole mystery He also contributes a bit to the Isabella Stewart Gardner museum heist. So listen to his interviews on Empty Frames, our other show about that heist, where he talks about his investigation into it. And he also brings on a special guest who was the girlfriend of one of the suspects. And uh, that is incredibly fascinating, especially because we've been doing Empty Frames for a few years now. And this is all brand new information. So Eric not only Brings D.B. Cooper to the table. He's also helped us out a bit with the uh, Gardner heist.
0: And Lance, we are going on tour this summer. I cannot wait. We are pairing up with True Crime Obsessed and Maggie Freeling. And we're hitting six different cities. Can you even believe it?
1: It's going to be incredible. We are doing six different cities, like you said, a mini tour. Uh, it's always great to get up there on stage with True Crime Obsessed. We go over the Disappearance of Moira Murray documentary and also the Finding Mora Murray independent documentary that you and I made with James Renner, and it's kind of like a roast fest. You're not going to get any breaking news on the case or really anything like that. What True Crime Obsessed does is they'll look at these true crime docuseries they'll give their comical take on them if you haven't heard their show you should really check that out true crime obsessed and this is live so they'll play clips and they'll rib us and then there's a nice fun back and forth and the audience really digs it uh this is happening in august and we're doing two legs technically uh tim why don't you handle the first leg and i'll let people know about the second
0: leg Wednesday, August 3rd, we're in Orlando, Florida. Thursday, August 4th, we're in West Palm Beach, Florida. And Saturday, August 6th, we are in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can get your tickets and some more information about the tour dates at truecrimeobsessed.com c-us-live. And if you're unable to make that first leg of the tour, we're going to do a second leg Friday,
1: August 19th. We will be in St. Paul, Minnesota. Saturday, August 20th, we will be in Dallas, Texas. Sunday, August 21st, we will be in Houston, Texas.
0: And we'll make sure that security has photographs of John Lorden so they don't let him into the St. Paul show, Lance. We're real strict about this. And
1: as a matter of fact, Tim, we're so serious about it, we're giving his photo to every one of the cities because it would be just like him to show up in Houston or Dallas or or somewhere in Florida. <laughs>
0: Him and Morph would be there in Florida. Morph would try to smuggle him in. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric Eulis. Make sure to check out his website. And we're going to break for commercial here, and then there'll be another break about midway through this conversation. And thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Make sure to follow us on social media. Welcome back to the podcast, Eric Euliss. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well, gentlemen. How are you two doing?
0: We're doing
1: great. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm kind of looking forward to this conversation because for years I've been trying to find a way to appreciate <laughs> the D.B. Cooper mystery. And I think you might be the person just the right person that'll uh, push me over the edge so welcome welcome to the show and 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 uh you know the platform is yours now
2: well i'm stoked to be here this will be a lot of fun like i said uh, it's always it's always fun talking about db cooper you know and i think part of what makes it just a really cool mystery to explore is that it's real like we know for sure it's real that there was this dude who pulled this thing off 50 years ago and got away with it so you know just knowing with certainty that it's real uh, makes it just, you know, kind of kicks it to a new level.
0: Right. Well, don't let Lance fool you. He uh, he hates this case, hates everything about it. He even hates the people who look into this case. Um, so he told Deep me before... <laughs> Before we started rolling, yeah. Um, Can you, (laughs) before we get into um, what you, I won't take it personally. (laughs) Okay, good. It's not personal. (laughs) Yeah, it's not personal, but there's a
1: deep-seated hatred. (laughs) Not personal. (laughs) Uh,
0: Before we get into your journey looking into the DB Cooper case, can you tell us a little bit about the case, sort of the basic facts?
2: Yeah, just a very quick summary. Uh, there's a guy who showed up at uh, Portland International Airport on November 24, 1971, which was Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, obviously, Thanksgiving being the next day. Uh, he bought a one-way ticket from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington, which is normally about a 36-minute flight. Uh, and once the flight departed the gate, uh, he skyjacked the jet. He did this by passing a note to one of the flight attendants uh, he had an attache case on board that ostensibly carried a bomb, which he showed to a couple of the flight attendants. And, uh, and there we go. Uh, basically, his demands were, you know, I want four parachutes. I want two hundred thousand bucks in cash and uh, no funny stuff. That's kind of it. And he basically said, hey, if we get all that you guys get this stuff together and have it ready for me in Seattle before I let the jet land. Uh, once I do that, then I'll let the passengers go. And uh, eventually all the stuff was brought to uh, to the airport in Seattle, the jet landed. Uh, he received his 200,000 bucks in cash and his four parachutes. When I say four parachutes, I wanna be clear. There are two main parachutes, the ones that go on the back, as well as two front parachutes, re- reserve parachutes that, that obviously go on the front. So he received, and he was specific. He wanted two mains and two reserves, or two front and two back. Uh, but once he got those items, uh, he let the passengers go. Uh, And at that point, he notified everybody, the the flight crew, which at that point was three pilots on the flight deck, as well as one of the flight attendants that he kept on the plane. Uh, He notified them that uh, his plan was to fly to Mexico City, wanted to fly nonstop. Uh, They said there was no possible way to fly nonstop, in part because what DB Cooper demanded was that the jet not fly over 10,000 feet in altitude. That it remain unpressurized, that a fly with the flaps at a very specific 15 degree setting, and that a fly with its landing gear down. So it was a very dirty, drag heavy configuration. Obviously, not very efficient, and you know the jet's lumbering along at 200 miles an hour. So there were some discussions that took place. They everybody agreed, let's stop in Reno for a fuel stop uh, on our way down to Mexico. And uh, so the jet takes off from Seattle. And uh, the 727, which was the type of airliner that we're talking about here for Northwest Orient Airlines, uh, has, an, has this air stairs apparatus. It's essentially built in, air, uh, built in stairs in the airplane that deploy from the back bottom of the fuselage. So uh, shortly after taking off half an hour or so, those air stairs, were lowered and DB Cooper made his way along those air stairs in the back of the jet flying along at 10,000 feet, a little bit of a blustery chilly rainy night and uh, jumped off the back of the jet into history. Uh, They they weren't really sure that he had jumped or they weren't absolutely certain that he had jumped until the plane actually landed in Reno a couple of hours later and he wasn't on the jet anymore. Uh, And that starts the whole mystery because they've never found anything. Uh, They've never, they never found his body, never found a parachute, never, you know, there's just nothing that they ever discovered out there. And uh, with the lone exception, I should say that in 1980, so about eight years after the skyjacking, they did find $6,000 of his ransom, his $200,000 ransom, which by the way, was paid entirely in $20 bills. They found a portion of it uh, buried in the sand along the Columbia river. The big problem with that is that it was found about 20 miles from where they think he jumped, and it was 20 miles upstream from where they think he jumped. So that was kind of like a head scratcher. How the hell did these three packets, of 20 dollar bills end up here? Uh, but that's kind of it. I mean, that's pretty much it. We don't know who the guy is. Don't know his real name. Don't know if he lived or died. Don't know where the hell he went. Don't know where he came from. And therein lies the mystery of DB Cooper.
1: Before we started this interview, it's, um, I operate out of the attic here, and it gets hot in the summer, Um, and right now it's probably one of the hottest days of the year here, but it gets, like, super hot up here in the attic. And I was looking at the air conditioning, the little air conditioning unit that I have, and it's a nightmare to put in. It's a nightmare to put in the window, and it always ends with aggravation, and I was honestly thinking, can my body handle... My brain handled the aggravation of putting the air conditioning unit in and listening to D B Cooper talk. <laughs> so I I actually uh I, I came up with the the lesser of two evils and I'm glad I did. So the air conditioning unit's not in. I'm listening to some DB Cooper talk and it feels like I might be coming around a bit. I didn't realize that that type of aircraft had those built in stairs and he jumped off sort of like out the back like that. Um and that that creates this romantic image in my head of this uh, criminal who essentially executed a a victimless crime. And do you think that that is why it is so appealing to people who like mysteries? Is that it it comes right to the point where like no one was actually really hurt, right? So you yeah. can approach it with um you you don't have to you don't have to be delicate with the facts, and and you don't have to feel like you're. I don't know, treading, have to tread lightly with, uh, with you know, victims and families and, and what comes along with other cold cases.
2: Sure. A couple of things here uh, worth noting as far as that, that thing goes. Uh, the only people on the airplane that knew that there was a skyjacking taking place were actually the flight attendants and the pilots. There were three pilots and three flight attendants. None of the passengers actually knew that. D.B. Cooper said he didn't want the passengers to know. So believe it or not, you know, even as the jets flying around, because it took the jet, it took a while for these guys to bring all this stuff together in Seattle. So the jet was kind of circling around the Seattle area for about two and a half hours. Uh, But none of the passengers realized what was happening until they actually walked off the jet in Seattle and were met by uh, law enforcement, FBI agents at the bottom of the stairs. At that point, they realized, wait a minute, we were hijacked. Okay, now it makes sense. So uh, even the passengers were handled pretty diplomatically, I guess I could say. Obviously, the flight crew experienced some stress and that kind of thing. But, it, but putting that aside, yes, victimless crime as far as that goes. But a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, uh, you know, you got to remember the era, you know, 1971, you know, this is in the wake of the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy, uh, you had the Kent State event that had happened uh, a few months before where the National Guard s- shot some students at Kent State University uh, because you've got you know, these, these, the Vietnam War and all that kind of stuff going on. So it was a really tumultuous time in, in U.S. history as far as that goes. So frankly, some guy rolling up and basically extorting $200,000 out of an uh, insurance company There were a lot of people that basically were kind of thinking good on him and insurance companies out 200 grand, who gives a shit? I mean, that's really, frankly, what a lot of people were kind of feeling as far as that goes, kind of like somebody who stuck it to the man. The other thing about D.B. Cooper is the guy sort of carried himself in a James Bond-esque kind of a manner. And what I mean by that is the guy, you know, he was conservatively dressed, you know, had, you know, conservative uh, short trimmed hair and no beard or anything like that you know, wore a a skinny, a black suit with a skinny black clip on tie. So he was basically had sort of a James Bond-esque kind of feel to the guy. And then, of course, then this whole grand mystery of who was the guy, where did he go, what happened to him? So I think all those elements sort of converge and come together to make this one of those cases that's just appealing for a lot of people. And And it makes it a little bit easier to digest. It's, it's a little bit more digestible because like you said, nobody was, was harmed physically or anything of that nature at all.
0: Okay, Eric, I have a lot of follow-ups and I want to get into some of the new stuff that we were talking about before, um, but I want to know about you and your dive into the DB Cooper case. You mentioned it's been around 14 years. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what you've done and why it keeps your interest?
2: You know, it, it, the case is one of those cases that I was familiar with. I probably became familiar with it in the late 1970s and just had a passing interest over the years. You know, as a kid, I was kind of an aviation buff and, you know, anything that had to do with airplanes was kind of cool. And uh, but somewhere, you know, I'd say 2005, 2006, something in, somewhere in that time frame, uh, I got a little more more interested in the case and, And I think what primarily motivated me is that, you know, occasionally there would be a new article or new theory or new documentary or something that would come out related to the show. And it just seemed like we were kind of getting into crazyville. The the longer the mystery went on, the wackier and the crazier these theories and conspiracy theories and so forth got. And I'm one of these guys who like, wants to know who the real DB Cooper is. I want to know what really happened. I'm not interested in some sort of fake fictionalized, crazy nutball version of D.B. Cooper and what happened here. So I thought, you know what, what the hell? I mean, I'm, I kind of, I'm one of those guys that kind of got into trying to solve the Rubik's Cube years ago. And, you know, I kind of like a good mystery like a lot of people. And I'm like, let me see what I can do as far as tackling this case is concerned. So I just started getting into it and, and trying to, you know, ascertain the facts and just familiarize myself with a lot of the evidence around it. Uh, In later years, uh, I want to say somewhere around 2016, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, the FBI started releasing literally thousands of pages of, of redacted FBI files related to the case going all the way back to the night of the skyjacking. So it gave me the opportunity to actually see, you know, real FBI documents, not colored stuff like you read in the media or what have you, or things that are slanted, it was the actual stuff. And I started just kind of coming up with some ideas and thoughts of my own. And that just one thing kind of led to another. The way I've described it is it started out as a guilty pleasure and it just ended up morphing into something much bigger. Ultimately, you know, History Channel special about the show and, you know, appearances on Expedition. I know with Josh Gates and uh, part of another documentary docu-series that's being released on a major streaming network we'll leave it at that i I think next month actually so it just kind of turned into something much bigger uh you know and and there we are there i here i am 2022 so doing your you know doing your fine podcast you're talking about the thing so
0: very cool, well, we love it and uh, and it's okay. we sometimes we use the o word on uh, on our other show, uh, obsessed with uh, certain cases, and uh, it's not a four letter word over here we uh, We actually like uh, talking about it, so um you know you're at home here.
2: Well, thank you
0: <laughs> I'm, real real quick where, where does this rank for you
1: on the list of historical uh crimes in the same vein as like not so much um no, I guess historical crimes, you know, like Amelia Earhart or Lizzie Borden, D.B. Cooper, where does it rank for you?
2: Like, I think it's number one. Uh, but, you know, just sort of removing myself from the equation, I mean, if you, you know, peruse the internet and look at any kind of lists that have been cobbled together over the years in terms of top mysteries, that kind of thing, uh, it's always on, invariably, it's on the list. It's on there with, you know, like you said, whether it's the, you know, Zodiac case or the, you Know Amelia Earhart, or you know, you know, any any of a myriad other cases like that. But yeah, I think it's number one. I you know, in in particular, I I I really dig this case. But having said that, uh, you know, I I think it's solvable. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're we're 50 years into it, and I've made a prediction. I've publicly stated I think within the next 10 years we'll know who this guy is. Now, I want to qualify that by saying, uh, you know, there are always going to be people who you know, don't buy into it. You know what I'm saying? So when I say, I think we know who D.B. Cooper is, it's going to genuinely be accepted as, yeah, this is the guy. I mean, everything kind of points to him. Uh, but yeah, you know, again, not everybody's going to be convinced. There are people who still think that, you know, the earth is flat, you know, so I'm not worried about that, those kind of people, but, uh, but I, we're getting close. I think we're getting much closer to this thing. And and even to this, to this day, you know uh, the investigation continues uh, uh, on behalf, you know, myself and others who are involved in it, and there are new big breaks and things that are that are evolving constantly. Uh, one of which we'll talk about in a little bit here that I think is uh, is a really big
0: deal. Now, just from hearing the, I guess, general facts about the case, it it seems to me that this uh, fellow um, knew something about airplanes or par- or possibly parachuting. Or something like that. More more so than what I would know if I was about to pull this off. So, is that a clue?
2: Yeah, I think the evidence is pretty clear that DB Cooper was familiar with aviation and uh, specifically the Boeing seven twenty seven. And the reason why I say that is because, firstly, he opted to jump via a seven twenty seven with the you know the air stairs, which is you know re- basically really the only airliner that had the. Descending air stairs, there was a DC-9 airliner, which was new, which wasn't nearly as popular, but the 727 was pretty much the only jet he could have pulled this off with. The other thing is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when the jet took off from Seattle, he had the pilots uh, fly with the flaps set at a 15 degree flap setting. Why that's notable is because 15 degree flap setting uh, was unique to the 727, there's a little, literally a a dentation in the uh, panel that enables them to specifically go sort of a preset angle at 15 degrees. So that's, it was unique to the 727, so that's notable. At one point, the uh, flight attendant uh, referenced oxygen bottles that were around the cabin in case, you know, there was low oxygen or whatever, if they got up too high, or whatever the deal was, and he said, I'm, I'm good with that. I know where they are if I need them. So there were sort of signs that he gave that indicated that he was familiar with the 727. Uh, same thing with skydiving at the end of the day, you know, these, these parachutes, for those who don't parachute, it probably, they probably wouldn't know this, but you know, the parachutes that were delivered to him, the one in, in particular, the one that he, that he put on, that he used, um, is not particularly easy to put on and, and use. It's not self-evident. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. You would think, oh yeah, you just strap the thing on and there you go. No, it's a lot more complicated than that. But he put it on without any issues and jumped. You know, So like I think it's pretty clear that this guy had some sort of familiarity and some sort of experience skydiving. So naturally, uh, the authorities, the FBI started looking at Boeing, started looking at skydiving clubs across you know, the United States, even into Canada, uh, as, as sort of fertile ground for, you know, areas that DB Cooper may have been located. Uh, one thing I should say that was notable is that when he pulled off the skyjacking here again, in 71, uh, the witnesses, uh, pegged his age at about 45 years of age. So the guy was an older guy. He wasn't some 21, you know, 20 year old kid doing this thing. Uh, he was in his mid forties. So, uh, that's something that's also worth noting and, and considering. And uh yeah, so there we go.
1: Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff there. So if he's in his mid forties in the early seventies, right? Yep. That would have made him probably like he could have he could have been in Vietnam at that with at that age, right?
2: Uh I think he would have been a little bit old for Vietnam. A little too old, yeah. Yeah, he would have, because yeah. he would have been in his late 30s, you know, it's it's, True. it's not beyond the realm of possibilities. And perhaps he served in Vietnam in some other capacity through, you know, some uh, agency or subcontractor of the United States military, something along those lines. So he didn't necessarily have to be a, a soldier. He could have, he could have been in Vietnam in some other sense.
1: Yeah. And I suppose he could have been in like, um, maybe the Korean War. That was the 50s, right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, I think the Korean War would have worked. I think it's also possible that he was perhaps at the very tail end of World War II. Yeah, you know, yeah, you, you add or take away a couple of years here and there to his age. And that, that can change things. But, you know, it's certainly reasonable to deduce that he may have had some milita- United States military experience. And he does appear to have been an American because the flight attendant said that he he did not uh, have any discernible accent. So he does appear to to be an American as far as that goes. And there are some other things, some other pieces of evidence that seem to indicate that as well.
1: All right. One, one more quick question. Um, have you ever run like an anagram search on D.B. Cooper or Dan Cooper? Have you ever tried to see if there's a hidden word or a hidden meaning in there?
2: Well, I actually saw somebody the other day who, who uh, said that D.B. Cooper... If you unfold it uh, or you know move the letters around, it comes out to board cop. <laughs> uh, so, but the here's the problem with that is that uh, when this gentleman showed up at Portland and bought his ticket with cash, a twenty dollar bill, he gave his name. He actually gave his name as Dan Cooper, not DB Cooper. Dan Cooper. What ended up happening here is that when the media started reporting about the skyjacking that took place. Uh, somebody in the media accidentally reported his name as D.B. Cooper, not Dan Cooper. And obviously, they quickly realized the authorities and everybody quickly realized the mistake. But it just stuck because, frankly, D.B. Cooper is a hell of a lot more badass of a name than Dan Cooper. So uh, so that, you know, the D.B. Cooper anagram thing doesn't work because that's not the name that he actually that they actually gave. Now, using the name Dan Cooper, uh, one of the things, you know, I, I actually countered this person who came up with this whole idea of the board cop thing. I said, well, you know, let's go with the name Dan Cooper. And maybe the guy was from the Rand Corp, Rand Corporation, and his initials were EO. You know, the, the Rand Corporation was a uh, created by Douglas Aircraft Company. So... I don't really spend too much time on those kind of things. And because there's a thousand different directions you can go as far as that goes, but uh, yeah, but it, it it is an an interesting game to play.
1: Really is drop ocean. (laughs) That's a, that's an anagram for Dan Cooper drop ocean.
2: That's cool.
0: (laughs) Now, do you think he actually wanted to get to Mexico or was it always his plan to jump out of the plane and sort of cause a misdirection?
2: I think it's very clear. I think the evidence clearly shows that he had no intention of getting anywhere near Mexico. Uh, I think it was uh, red herring. Uh, I think the evidence also clearly shows that his plan was to jump immediately after the jet took off from Seattle. So what ended up happening here is that when everything was buttoned up in Seattle and they were ready to go, In addition to the demands of fly the jet with the flaps at 15 degrees, leave the landing gear down and all that good stuff, don't fly over 10,000 feet in altitude. He also wanted the pilots to take off with the air stairs already lowered, with the air stairs opened and literally hanging down from the back bottom of the fuselage, literally dragging on the runway. He wanted the jet to take off like that. And that started a conversation between D.B. Cooper and the pilots and the pilots essentially refused. They said, we can't take off like that. We don't exactly know what will happen. And Cooper actually responded and said, yes, they can. You know, it seemed to know that actually indeed it is safe to take off like that. And as a side note, interestingly, years later, in fact, it was proved that you could take off. 727 could depart with the air stairs hanging down, dragging on the runway. But one that ended up happening here is ultimately D.B. Cooper relented and deferred to the pilots and said, OK, let's go ahead and we'll have the air stairs up. But as soon as we take off, you know, we're going to lower those down. And, and the way you lowered them was through this handle that was in the back of the jet. The pilots weren't responsible for lowering the air stairs. D.B. Cooper or the flight attendant had to pull this handle in back. So uh, the jet takes off. And sure enough, a few minutes after the jet takes off, Cooper's trying to lower the stairs and he couldn't lower the stairs. There was no way that he was having a problem they wouldn't lower. He eventually got on the interphone, contacted the flight deck and said, I'm having a problem here. I can't lower the stairs. What the pilots did is they slowed the jet down a little bit and they leveled the jet because at that point it was sort of like gaining altitude, but they, they leveled the jet, slowed it down a little bit. And then at that point, Cooper was actually able to finally get them to drop down. Uh, so that along with some other things, I think ultimately led to a situation where DB Cooper was prevented from jumping right out of right after takeoff from Seattle, meaning five or six minutes after, after takeoff from Seattle. So, uh, I envision that he's kind of it, sitting in the back. there, kind of looking for, you know, a plan B, a second best place to jump. And he gave no directions. He didn't tell them he didn't them no directions on how to get to, Reno or what have you? He just said fly, <laughs> so that's the other thing. So having an accomplice on the ground would have also been very tough, given that fact. But uh, about 36 minutes after taking off, uh, they started, uh, as as fate would have it, they started approaching the lights of Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, Washington, which are you know right next to each other. And uh, it's at that point when DB Cooper jumped, I guess, apparently realizing hey, there's civilization down there, and, uh, and he jumped. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the story as far as that goes.
1: And what about the money that you said they found uh, buried, and they dug that up? It, it was how far away from like, the, the jump area that they found that?
2: Yeah, it was about 20 miles as the crow flies thereabouts. I mean, they weren't exactly sure where he jumped. They had kind of a ballpark idea uh but it was about 20 miles along the columbia river and uh and again like i said it's not as simple as saying well he jumped in this area and, and it landed in you know the lewis river for example for those who are familiar with the pacific northwest you know it's not as simple as saying he landed in the lewis river through some matter of grave misfortune and it all got swept down the lewis river and then joined up with the columbia river and then you know ended up getting deposited on this on this beach called tina bar by the way the name of the place it was found was at a beach called tina bar tina being spelled t-e-n-a uh, t-e-n-a tina bar and the reason why that that scenario is impossible because like i said where the river the lewis river in particular joins up with the columbia is about eight or nine miles downstream for the money was found so you know unless the money had the ability to kind of like you know Swim upstream somehow and, you know, with this little money legs walk up the beach and bury itself for, you know, eight years Uh, that ain't happening. So there's got to be another, another story behind it. And I, to me personally, what that tells me is that DB Cooper probably landed somewhere different than where they think he landed. You know, I, I think that, I think it's clear that the authorities did make some mistakes over the intervening decades of the investigation. And I think one of the critical areas that they made is that the flight path is slightly off. I'm not saying it's like a hundred miles off. I'm saying that I think the jet was probably flying seven or eight miles west of where they thought it was flying. And it'd be a thing that's easy to to make an error with uh, or an error about. And that that accounts for uh, why they never found anything, where they think he jumps, and why it also, why what they did find in terms of some of that money was found someplace totally different.
1: Yeah. And just to follow up uh, on the money real quick, do you think that he could have put that there as a diversion? And was it found in any sort of container, like a bag or a box or anything?
0: Yeah. How buried was it?
2: Yeah, it was three individual packets of... Uh, twenty dollar bills, and they were very rotted and decayed. By the way, I have one. I can show you if you want to see it. Yes. Um, okay. Let me just step away. It's literally take seven seconds. So. Seven. Yeah, six, literally.
0: Oh. Five. Wow. Oh, that was quick. Wow. There, there we go. Wow, so Very neat.
2: I don't know if you can see this very well because I got that, but that that's uh, that's one of the twenty dollar bills that was found right on the beach there, and you can see it's really pretty rotted basically what you're looking at is about 25% of the original bill. So about 75% of the bill, you know, pretty uniformly is missing around the edges and that just rotted away. So obviously it had been there for quite some time. Obviously that had been there for, for, you know, obviously several years. So, but how the money was found is you have these three sort of packets that were kind of one on top of the other, just below the surface of the sand. There were sort of crusted up pieces of rubber bands still intact on kind of the front part and of some of these bills, you know, so that, you know, that that's interesting to note. And importantly, these were three separate packets. So, You know, people have talked about, well, maybe it just kind of drifted down the river and these things got washed up on the beach and got buried. Well, how do three packets sit, stay together? That's the first thing. It's just, there's no possible way. It would be virtually mathematically impossible. The other thing is that it was found about 50 feet from the water's edge. So it was found, you know, about 50 feet from the water's edge and seven or eight feet above the level of the Columbia River under normal conditions, So, you know, that's another thing that points to the fact that this money was actually buried there. So my theory about all of this is that, you know, without getting into the weeds with all this stuff, uh, DB Cooper, when he landed, landed in a place he wasn't planning on landing. Again, I think he was originally planning on jumping in the outskirts of Seattle, in the exurbs of Seattle, but he's 150 miles away in the exurbs of Portland. So he's someplace he didn't tend on being. And, you know, he has this big bag of cash. It came in a big white open top canvas bank bag, basically, that he had tied off with shroud lines from one of the parachutes that he had cannibalized. And that bag of cash weighed about 22 pounds. Well, it stands to reason he can't just kind of tool around and walk into downtown carrying 22 pounds of cash. You know what I'm saying? He's got to stash it somewhere temporarily. So I think it's clear that he did that in the sand because it's about the easiest place to bury is just dig a hole in the sand and throw it in there. And that he came back at a later date to retrieve it, probably during a flooding event. Uh, There were two flooding events that took place between the time of the skyjacking and the time of when the money was found. One of them happened to be seven months later in June of 1972. Uh, So I believe that he came back probably somewhat concerned that, hey, if I don't retrieve the money out of the beach here, maybe it gets swept out to the ocean or uncovered or something of that nature. And that in the process of doing this, presumably at night, can't imagine him doing this in the middle of the day, that, uh, that a few of the packets got left behind and reburied. And that's essentially what we're looking at here. That's essentially what was found several years later. And there's scientific evidence that actually backs up. A story like that
0: okay all right here we go so it is your your belief that he survived the the landing the jump um and then probably buried some uh of the money there on the beach himself probably more than what was recovered in 1980 and he later came back to that point to recover some of it so you so i guess he walked out of this beach area and hitchhiked or something like that?
2: Well, um, so to kind of step back for a second here to to answer some of your questions directly. Yes. I think there's a, I think there's a 100% certainty that DB Cooper survived the jump and got away, just walked away. That's why we never found anything, a body or anything else. That's the first thing. Uh, yes, I believe that he landed very near where the money was, where a few packets were found and that he buried the money. And you know, one thing I should say is that when he requested $200,000, he specifically said he wants it in a knapsack. You know, knapsack obviously to somehow put on him and jump like that, but it didn't show up in a knapsack. When they delivered the $200,000, it was in this white canvas bank bag. We've probably seen something like that before. It doesn't have any zippers on the top, doesn't have any snaps doesn't even have handles, There's, you know, it was just totally open. And I think when he saw that and it was delivered to him, uh, he was displeased. In fact, he was displeased, he complained about it because he's like, yo, I can't jump like with with the money like this, obviously, it's gonna like, go all over the place and everything else. So what ended up happening, I believe, is that he he took some of the money out of the bag because the bag was really quite heavy and quite full. So he took some of it out, You know, let's say, 40 or 50 grand of it out. Took that out, uh, lightened the load in the bank bag and then tied that bank bag off. And then the bank bag he tied to his person. With that excess cash, the 40 or 50 Gs that he pulled out of the bank bag, I believe he actually stuffed into the reserve parachute that he also jumped with. Because he did jump with not only the parachute on his back, but a secondary or reserve parachute, but there was no way to attach it and again, we're getting technical here, but there's no way to attach it to the back parachute. So he, he tied it to his, his person in some other manner. So what I think happened is when he lands and he's got to bury the money, he digs a hole in the sand and that bank bag, that tied off bank bag that has most of the money. I think he throws that bag in the hole. And I think he extracts the, you know, 40 or 50 grand of loose packets out of that reserve parachute that, he, that where he had put the money when he jumped. So he also takes these loose packets and also throws those in the hole at the same time and covers it all up. So when he goes back months later to retrieve everything, you know, he obviously pulls out the bank bag out of the hole and scrapes around and tries to recover those loose packets. But I think unbeknownst to him, three of them just got left behind. Again, this is at night and there are other conditions. It was was during a flood period and everything else. So I think that's what happened there. And at that point, uh, uh, when he jumps, yeah, he, he when he lands and he buries the money, he's got about a seven mile walk to get into downtown Vancouver, Washington. So, yeah. And it's a lonely single road. There's no other road that goes up. It's the only road. So it's the only way out. Uh, so, yeah, he would have hiked the seven miles or walked the seven miles into town probably jumped on a Greyhound bus or trailways, whatever the heck was rolling back then. And uh, I'd imagine he probably went back up to Seattle because I think he, I think, again, I think his plan was to end the day in Seattle. So he probably had something set up, a motel room or something like that already set up there. And uh, so he probably went up there and kind of, you know, reorganized or whatever. May have been concerned that he was being surveilled or what have you, who knows what the story is, but for whatever reason, decided to kind of lay low for probably six or seven months until this flood in 1972 and then at that point he decided you know what i better get the cash and i think it was during that process that uh again unbeknownst to him three of those packets got left behind
1: super interesting um and a little fact uh I I went to uh, dollartimes.com because I was curious what $200,000 in today's money would be and back then $200,000 you know you're thinking about I, like when you hear about it DB Cooper stealing $200,000 it doesn't sound like that's worth it to risk like your your freedom forever if you get caught it was uh adjusted uh to be around 1.4 million so yeah. back then, that had the buying power of 1.4 million today. So that was a that was a pretty sweet, uh, <laughs> pretty sweet uh, uh, get from from this.
2: That's a lot of cabbage that guy's rolling with at that point. So uh, I do believe he got away with 194,000 of it, and I think mm-hmm. the other six thousand, including you know, twenty bucks right here. He just, you know, he he obviously accidentally left behind, and and now Eric Euliss has got one of (laughs) part of his ransom. So, but uh, but yeah, so that's uh, yeah, that's right. It's it's a load of cash. It's a lot of money back then in in 1971. Yeah,
1: and I guess that leads me to my next question about the investigation. Were any was there any investigation into people who were investing in you know property, crypto, uh, crypto, (laughs) early crypto.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, the thing about it is, you know, I'm there's about 30,000 pages of FBI files that have come out related to this. And I've seen I've read them all I've read the 30,000 pages. So I'm very familiar with the investigation that the FBI conducted. And I think they did a pretty solid job. Now, they obviously made some mistakes, as I referenced earlier, but that's to be expected. But yeah, they looked at uh, about everything that you could imagine and every suspect that you could imagine, because you, you would just be amazed at some of the stuff that would come up. Like they had people calling them up, literally saying, hey, I was watching an episode of Perry Mason and, you know, one of the supporting actors looks an awful lot like D.B. Cooper The FBI literally would have to look into it just to make sure that the supporting actor wasn't D.B. Cooper and all that kind of stuff. There's another story of a guy contacting the FBI saying that he had created a divining device, the special device that could point to where the money is. And the divining device was basically a jar with Alka-Seltzer and water in it with a little metal rod that apparently would kind of point in the direction of the money. Now, to you and I hearing about it, it sounds crazy because it is crazy, but the FBI had to sort of take that seriously. They had to look into the guy who's dreaming this thing up because who knows, maybe D.B. Cooper was some wacko kind of guy who was trying to couch it as he happened to find the money through this dividing device and therefore was entitled to the money or the reward or whatever the case may happen to be. So it's clear that the FBI expended an enormous amount of resources looking into what I would call credible, valid suspects and leads. But then there was also a lot of uh, effort and resources wasted on just crazy stuff. But they did a pretty thorough job as far as that goes. Uh, I don't know that they looked into crypto or anything of that nature. <laughs> but uh, but every, with, you know, I can tell you with certainty that they did look into dividing devices with uh, water and alka though.
0: Okay, well, I I can only imagine that's that's how they located the uh, the buried money. Um, Just kidding. (laughs) Um, I have uh, two questions. The parachute, I think you mentioned earlier, the parachute was never recovered Um, with that. Is that something that would have dissolved easier than the money, you think? And were there ever any eyewitnesses along that road or at least did the FBI look into that?
2: The FBI did look into eyewitnesses and so forth, and uh, to this day, there has never been a credible eyewitness uh, that can finger D.B. Cooper after the guy jumped out of the jet. I mean, he literally is an enigma that just sort of disappeared into thin air there. As far as the parachutes are concerned, um, that's an important thing because uh, in my diseased mind, it makes sense to me that at the time D.B. Cooper buried the money, because he can't walk into town with the money, he also probably buried the parachute in probably the attache case that ostensibly carried the bomb, those, the item, those items as well that he jumped with. And if you believe, as I do, that he went back and ultimately retrieved the money seven months later, it does beg the question, well, did he retrieve the parachute at the same time? Why would he? Is there any, does it make any sense? He didn't own the parachutes. I mean, what? who gives a shit, you know? So um, I'm of the opinion that the parachute is still out there, just waiting to be found. Why this is important is that when you look at where the money was found, a place called Tina Bar, like I mentioned earlier, uh, it looks nothing today like it did back then in 1980 when the money was found or certainly in 1971 when the skyjacking took place and the reason why is because there's been an enormous amount of erosion that has taken place and it's completely reshaped the beach and uh which is sort of an interesting thing in and of itself but i've been to tina bar several times it's on private property i know the owners very well the owners of the of Tina Barr now, were the same owners of Tina Bar back when D.B. Cooper jumped and also when the money was found. And you can see them working with the FBI with backhoes and stuff, digging on the beach, trying to see if there's any more money there. And there was never anything else found. But one of the things that I noticed as I've investigated Tina Barr is that you know, while there's been an enormous amount of erosion and the beach has largely been stripped away, there's one particular part of the beach that was never stripped away. Uh, Serendipity kind of played a part as far as I'm concerned. And it just happens to line up perfectly with where the money was found. So I am of the belief, I am of the opinion that that parachute is actually probably sitting 50 feet from where the money was found 40 something years ago, 42 years ago and that it's in part of the beach that the FBI just never looked at, which is the, which is true. I mean, it's for whatever reason, they've never searched this part of the beach. So I've actually been uh, working with the owners over the last year doing digs of, around that area. there, trying to see if the parachute is actually there, is actually buried there. After 50 years, the parachute is probably still largely intact because it's pretty heavy kind of canvasy sort of material. But more importantly, there are a lot of components made of stainless steel. And that stainless steel is gonna be there in 10,000 years. It's not gonna go anywhere. So uh, certainly uh, even if the rest of the parachute had dissolved away, the stainless steel components are still going to be in place. And I think there's a reasonably good chance that we end up finding the parachute when all said and done.
1: What about in the water?
2: Uh, the, the water itself was, has been searched over the years as well. There's scientific evidence that points to D.B. Cooper not landing in the water. And here's what I mean, and this is where we get a little technical, so I'll try to be very simple. Uh, this bill right here, this actual bill was analyzed by a scientist, a guy named Tom K., And a couple of years ago, and I believe it was in 2020, 2021 or 2020, discovered that there are these things called diatoms that are on the bill. Diatoms are these very small glass-like organisms that were found on the bill. And uh, they're about the size of a blood cell. So you can't see them with the naked eye. But the bill is covered with these, these diatoms. And what, why that's notable is because the Columbia River has these diatoms, has these organisms that bloom in the river throughout the year. And depending upon the season, there's a different type of, there's a different species of diatom in the springtime versus the wintertime. Well, it just so happens that the diatom, the species of diatom that was found on this bill uh, is consistent with the spring leading into summer, in other words, around the June time frame. It's not around during the month of November, for example, when D.B. Cooper jumped. So we can prove scientifically that the money did not enter the Columbia River when he jumped, in other words, Cooper didn't land in the river when he jumped because otherwise the bill would also be covered with diatoms from the winter season. It appears that it was only exposed to the river during the June timeframe, which coincidentally happens to be when there was a flooding event that took place seven months later in June of 1972. So part of my theory is, is that D.B. Cooper, hanging out probably on the East Coast, sees in, the, in, in weather reports or what have you that the Columbia River happens to be experiencing historic flooding, which it was, historic flooding. And that he thought, I better get this money that he traveled out there and dug up the money again at night at that point when he dug up the money it was the river had risen to a point where it was probably already under a foot or so of water so this guy is digging in a foot of water trying to you know pull out this bag out of his watery grave in the sand and fish around for you know loose packets of 20s uh, and I think he did a pretty good job. But the three of those packets, obviously, as he was fishing around, got exposed to the river water, obviously, because it was flooded, but he just missed them. And obviously, the, the sand settled back into that hole, and then the river ended up receding and, and the flood was gone. And But essentially, that locked in place, those those three packets to be found in 1980. So what we have is that would explain how it is that when the bills... You know were discovered in 1980 and this one in particular why it would have diatoms from the june time frame from the columbia river and only from the june time frame in the columbia river so that's why i'm saying there there are there are scientific evidence and other things that we can point to that that give us a pretty good idea of what what happened and what didn't happen as far as that goes
0: that's incredible is that mothman in the background
2: yeah, that's uh, unfortunately uh, uh, the screeching uh, bird in the background there. So hopefully it uh, dials down here. I can go up there and kind of have it <laughs> get it to kind of quiet as you want me to. But uh, oh no, 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 it's, no it's, it's, it's
1: adding a nice uh, yeah, nice, yeah. Nice, nice effect. It's
2: no, I don't, I don't live in yeah, I don't live in the tropics. I'm in the, I'm in Arizona here for right now. But uh, yeah, so
0: <laughs> well, if there's one thing Lance hates more than DB Cooper, it's Mothman. It's-
1: mothman and parrots yes
0: (laughs) and we'll be right back
1: after a quick word from our sponsors
0: thanks to our sponsors and now we're back to the program
1: i'm really impressed and you're turning me around here i'm really impressed that that bill or or those bills were analyzed to that extent where you're able to put that Seven-month time frame on there. That's that's how you got that time frame was because of the what are they called diet, diatoms?
2: diatoms. Diatoms, And here, here here's the interesting thing is that again we know you know where the money was buried. We know what part of the beach. And remember, I said it was about forty or fifty feet from the water's edge, and it was about seven or eight feet above the level of the Columbia River under normal conditions. Well, I looked back at historical records for the Columbia River during that that time frame there. There are only two times when the Columbia River flooded, and actually was high enough where it reached the spot where the money was actually buried. There are only two times. Once was in June of 1972 that I referenced. The other was in June of 1974. So I don't think it's a coincidence that these this bill has June tie times on it, and that the two flooding events happened to both occur in June. So. So I think, again, that's sort of the Sherlock Holmes kind of part of this case here where you kind of look into it and and it gives you the opportunity to kind of peel away the layers of the onion and learn some things. That's also part of the reason why I feel very strongly, very passionately about this, the fact that we'll eventually figure out who this guy is because, you know, we're dealing with evidence today or instruments, scientific instruments and and that kind of analysis today that didn't exist 50 50 years ago when this took place. And and I think that ultimately, you know, that those enhances in science and technology are going to ultimately unravel the mystery of D.B. Cooper.
0: All right, Eric. uh, Now, I really want to get into your new evidence and uh, would love to hear what you got.
2: Okay, very cool. So... D.B. Cooper, uh, after he jumped, uh, left a skinny black clip-on tie on the jet. So when the jet showed up in Reno and they realized, yo, D.B. Cooper's gone, one of the things that they found was a skinny black clip-on tie that was sitting on his chair and D.B. Cooper was seen wearing a skinny black tie. So apparently, Cooper took the tie off, threw it on the chair, you know, tied the money and all the stuff to put the parachutes on and just forgot about the tie. Well, okay, 1971, there's just not much they could learn from the tie. Well, you know, fast forward, you know, four or five decades and it's a totally different world. Not only can you look for DNA and that kind of thing, but you can also look at other things. One of the things that was discovered on the tie was. An array, an array, not array, an array of particles on the tie, something north of 100,000 particles, that uh, included commercially pure titanium, high-grade aluminum, high-grade stainless steel, uh, certain titanium alloys, and an array of rare earth elements. All things that are very special. You know, we think about titanium today and it's like no big deal. You've got titanium and wedding rings and golf clubs and all kinds of crap. Well, back in the 60s, and the 71, titanium was exceptionally rare, especially commercially pure titanium. And the great majority of it was used in the aerospace sector, which again seems to be consistent with D.B. Cooper's knowledge of aviation and everything. So, uh there was an analysis done on the tie in some of these particles by a very famous company called Macron Labs, based in Chicago. They're, they're, they're world famous. And they came up with an Excel spreadsheet listing all these particles and so forth, north of 100,000. Well, I'm sort of batshit crazy enough where I start reading these 100,000 particles. You know, I kind of start going through the data and looking at all this stuff. And one of the things that I noticed about, I wanna say probably four to six weeks ago was I noticed three particular unique particles which are metal particles. They're not oxygenated particles, they're actual metal particles. And they were an alloy. They were uh, an alloy that was a blend of commercially pure titanium and an element called antimony. So it's a titanium antimony blend, which is very unusual. So why this is important to find three particles of titanium and antimony is that I did some research and I discovered that there was a company that actually had received a patent for this specific titanium antimony alloy very specific percentages and so forth. And it's, it's within those parameters there. So it does appear that these three particles are of this specific alloy that was patented by this, this company back in the mid 1950s. This company was called Rem Crew, R-E-M-C-R-U, and it, it was headquartered in Midland, Pennsylvania. Importantly, they had a research a facility that was located in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at that time. And they're the kind of company that was dealing with, you know, looking into specialty metals and so forth, because they had a lot of contracts with aerospace companies, not only commercial aerospace, but also or commercial aviation, but also like the military and that kind of thing as well. So, why this is critically important is it does appear that these three particles that were found on D.B. Cooper's tie clearly point to the fact that D.B. Cooper somehow was exposed to, the, to this particular alloy pro- produced at this particular company. What's also important about this thing is that this alloy was never commercially produced. Apparently, it was just something they experimented with, gained a patent for it, then never commercially produced it. So it appears that the only place Cooper could have picked this up was at this Rem Crew Titanium Corporation. Why that's important is because I I think that's tantamount to, I, I essentially refer to it as basically commercial DNA. Just as human DNA can point you to a specific individual, commercial DNA can point you to a specific company. So it does appear that D.B. Cooper actually came from and probably worked at this REM crew Titanium Corporation in the 50s, into the 60s, and, and may well have worked up into the early 70s, at which point there was a big layoff, a big collapse of that whole industry. And he probably had a pink slip in hand and that may well have of motivated him to actually pull off the pull off the skyjacking. So that is huge because we may have identified the specific place, the specific area where D.B. Cooper came from. Uh, Rem Crew has changed hands many times over the last several decades. Um, the, the current company is a company called Crucible, uh, which was in the steel and all kinds of stuff as well. I've been talking with the president of the company Uh, Trying to get my hands on old documents, old photographs, old pictures, things of that nature, newsletters, things of that nature to see if we can identify D.B. Cooper there. So that's a work in progress as far as that goes. But that's a really, really, really big deal because I think the evidence clearly shows that D.B. Cooper probably didn't live in the Pacific Northwest. He he was familiar with it, apparently, apparently but he probably worked at this particular Crew uh, Corporation, Titanium. Uh, he probably had traveled to Seattle on a handful of occasions because again, just the nature of the materials they're working with, I can see how there would have been uh, quite a bit of sort of cross-pollination and coordination between Boeing, for example, and their corporation and others. And uh, and again, at some point, probably with a pink slip in hand, he decided to pull this thing off and there it is. So. I'm looking for a guy that uh, lived in the Pittsburgh area, and I think it's very, very, very likely that that indeed D.B. Cooper did come from the Pittsburgh area, probably went back to the Pittsburgh area after the skyjacking, uh, which means that, you know, while they're looking for this guy in the Pacific Northwest, he's hanging out in Pittsburgh, and again, as I noted already, probably keeping an eye on things, hanging kind of low. And then seven months later realizes, you know what? There's a flood going on. I better get on a plane and go back there and get that money. And that's what happened. And therein lies the lion's share of the story. Now, as to what happened with the 194000 that he apparently collected from the beach and all that good stuff, who knows?
1: He bought the Steelers.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> so he's one of the Rooney's then, huh? Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> um, hey, wow. Well,
1: what a, what a crazy, um, remarkable, fascinating theory uh, that you just laid out there. Well done on putting all that together. Uh, have you looked at the names of the suspects that have been listed uh, in DB Cooper's case and cross-reference that with any employees from that time period?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with uh, pretty much all the suspects in the, in the case here, uh, and I'm of the opinion that none of them uh check off all the boxes. So uh you know years ago I firmly believed that DB Cooper was probably somebody that law enforcement had come across at some point they just didn't know that that was DB Cooper, you know. But I've changed my mind in in uh in recent uh, probably in the last year or so. I'm now of the opinion that DB Cooper is somebody who flew completely under the radar and that law enforcement just never came across and that that in large part explains how it is that D.B. Cooper got away with this thing. I've said many times that, you know, while there's a human nature is such that it leads people to, you know, come up with exotic conspiracies and exotic theories to explain mysteries like D.B. Cooper. For example, he was a CIA black ops guy or he was involved in President Nixon's reelection campaign or, or whatever. I mean, I've I've heard it all. The truth of the matter is, is that I think it's much simpler than that. I'm somebody who embraces Occam's razor, which essentially states the simplest solution is usually the closest to the truth. And I suspect that D.B. Cooper was a middle-aged guy, probably with a pink slip in his hand, down on his luck. And for whatever reason, he figured this was his ticket out. This was his ticket out, skyjacked the jet and, and pulled this thing off. And I think he was one of these guys who didn't brag about it. Didn't, you know, go to the bar the next day and say, hey, guess what I did, you know, Thanksgiving Eve. I think he was very quiet about it. And importantly, he just stayed one or two steps ahead of the authorities the entire way. And therein lies, you know, therein lies an explanation for how this guy managed to get away with it all. I don't think D.B. Cooper was a career criminal. I think this was a one off event, the, a, a, a desperate uh event from a desperate individual like i said probably financially jammed up and there you go i think that's who db cooper is and i think that's who db cooper was and i think that explains it i know it may not be as sexy as you know somebody working for president nixon or some sort of cia black ops guy in, in in asia but i think that's the truth of the matter
0: well i'm just relieved you didn't uh you didn't say it was my dad
2: that's right. <laughs> it wasn't your dad, and I don't think he had anything to do with this at all. Stewart Gardner, same place. Nice, so. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, that
1: jury's was close. still out on the second
0: part. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs>
2: um,
0: I have one question. Um, the the bomb, I guess, or, or I su- assume fake bomb was that was that something that that was not a real bomb, or did it detonate, or what? Yeah, tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, this is what we know about it. When he opened the attache case, he showed what appeared to be a bomb and it had, you know, reddish colored sticks with, uh, you know, kind of a large battery and some wires and things like that. And uh, he had two wires that he said, hey, if I touch, touch the two wires, it'll, you know, it'll complete the circuit and the bomb will explode. Dynamite is not red. It's a darker color, uh, but apparently the the sticks that were in this thing were red. so. I think a lot of people feel like it was probably they were probably road flares is probably what he he used to construct this bomb. And the general feeling and I'm on board with this as well is that uh, the bomb was fake. After all there's really no reason to have a real bomb. I mean, you know, what's the end game? Like uh, why why have a why have a real bomb when a fake bomb will do everything you needed to do basically. Plus you don't run the risk of it blowing up accidentally and everything else. So uh, so that's what we know. Uh, what we do know is that that was not on the jet when it arrived in Reno. So the bomb was gone. The money was gone. You no know, couple of the parachutes were gone. And D.B. Cooper was gone. So that's kind of, you know, all that stuff was gone. And uh, I believe that the reason he took the briefcase and the bomb with them is because uh, obviously, if he had left that behind, that would have been a treasure trove of evidence because there were obviously components and things of that nature that the Authorities would, able, would have been able to look into and determine, OK, picked this up at Ace Hardware on this date or maybe picked up this electrical tape here. You know, there may have been fingerprints on the electrical tape. I mean, so I think Cooper realized that, you know, there was just too much evidence there to leave behind. And uh, therefore, he jumped with that as uh, with that as well.
1: Now, what about the note? Yeah. That he passed the, uh, the flight attendant? Sure.
2: Good Good question. Uh, When he first got on the jet and everything else, uh, he handed the flight attendant a note that was in an envelope, Uh, kind of leaned back to the flight attendant and handed it to her as she was sitting in the the jump seat, basically the very back of the plane and Dee Cooper was sitting in the very back row of the jet, importantly, important to note. Uh, But when she collected that when she took the note from him, she just stuck it in her in her pocket, didn't read it. And Cooper noticed that, so he kind of kept on, was turning around, looking at her, kind of like sort of not saying anything to her. But she said that, you know, it was obvious that at a point that he was kind of sort of indicating to her in a nonverbal manner, you you want to read the note. So what happened is um, she uh, did pull the note out, the envelope opened it up, and it said, you know, Miss, I've got a bomb here. I want you to come sit by me. And so she sits up and goes and sits next to him. And, uh, you know, he opens up the attache case shows the bomb. And, and then what happens is he proceeds to issue some demands. So she takes out a piece of paper with a pen from her, I guess her handbag or whatever, and writes down his demands. He says, I want $200,000 in cash. I want it by 5pm. I want the you know, fuel trucks ready to refuel the jet immediately. I want four parachutes, two front and two back parachutes. Uh, No funny stuff or I'll do the job. So what ends up happening is the flight attendant then goes to the flight deck and takes the two notes up to the captain, the the note that she wrote with his demands plus the note that he wrote. Uh, But shortly thereafter, D.B. Cooper demanded the notes back. So the note that he wrote, as well as the notes that she wrote, he got back and he also jumped with those. So those are also gone.
1: Pretty thorough. It's funny to me that he uh, forgot his tie.
2: Yeah, but I think it was an oversight. I, I, think it, yeah. I think it was a mistake. You know, one interesting thing is he smoked uh, about seven or eight cigarettes on the jet as well. They even had a cigarette with the flight attendant because they sat together for several hours while this whole thing was going on. And, uh, a couple of things, the, she was, the flight attendant was lighting the cigarettes for him. So, uh, and, and he, so he had a pack of matches that he gave to her. She would take the pack of matches and light the cigarette. Well, it just so happened that one of the cigarettes, involved utilizing the last match in the, in the matchbook. And she attempted to throw that matchbook away. And he said, no, I wanna take that back. So he even took that piece of trash back with him and jumped with that as well. He obviously was very careful about, careful about not leaving evidence. That said, the tie was left. I do think it was an oversight. It's worth, it's important to note that it was a black clip on tie. The chair itself was a dark blue color and the lights in the cabin were out. So it was dark and back as he was doing this, he had the lights out in the cabin. Uh, so, uh, it's very easy to see how he's doing everything and probably got his nerves going and everything else where he just simply didn't see the black tie sitting in the chair at at, at night, you know, in, in the back there. And, uh, And there it is. But as it, you know, the the truth of the matter is, is that it was of little value to the authorities back in 1971. It's only in later years that we've actually been able to learn anything about the tie, which, by the way, I have seen. I have seen the tie with my own eyes. Last October, I was in Washington, D.C. at the uh, headquarters for the FBI and did actually see the tie. It's there, uh, which is kind of a cool piece of history there. Uh, One other thing to bring up, because people ask about this all the time, are these cigarette butts, because he smoked, like I said, seven or eight cigarettes and left the butts on board the plane. The authorities did collect the butts. They did analyze them at Quantico. They were looking for fingerprints, that kind of thing. Uh, They did not have DNA testing, obviously, back then. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, what happened is after they were analyzed at Quantico, the FBI uh, just said, go ahead and destroy them. Because they're just, they're of no value. They're just trash to destroy them. So they were destroyed. Of course, nowadays that would be, you know, an enormous treasure trove of evidence. So there's no DNA that we've managed to procure from the, uh, from the cigarette butts. That said, there is a partial DNA profile that they did manage to get off of the tie uh, in, I wanna say, like 2001, something like that. I don't know that anything else has been done on the tie since then. Uh, but it's a partial DNA profile. It's not complete. Uh, And they're not 1000% sure that it's actually D.B. Cooper's DNA, but, you know, they seem reasonably confident that it is or that his DNA is there. So there is a little bit of something to work with there. You know, unfortunately, it's not the kind of thing where we've got DNA that's going to thousand percent prove that somebody was DB cooper but you can use it to eliminate suspects to say somebody just totally doesn't match so therefore that person's not DB cooper
0: yeah absolutely they could potentially do some genealogy and kind of reverse engineer and uh, cross-reference some other suspects or you know folks like like who you mentioned you know from the Pittsburgh area or Potentially uh employees at that uh at that factory.
2: Yeah. And 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 I mean I would love it. I mean, if uh if anybody's listening to this that's from that area or has some sort of familiarity relationship with REM crew or or you know anything of that nature, crucible uh, steel after that into the 1960s, you know, shoot me an email, Eric at ericulist.com. You know, I'd love to hear from you because I'm trying to get as much information as I can. Uh, related to that company. Again, Eric at ericulis.com. But, uh, you know, that's what it's going to take at this point. I mean, it's sort of almost kind of a brute force attempt to kind of like get information and stuff out to the public. And then, you know, obviously we do have, you know, science and technology and things like that that are pretty cutting edge nowadays that are, that are you know, helping us out as well, providing some assist. But uh, I think we'll eventually figure out, like I said earlier, I think we'll eventually figure out who this guy was. Uh, And I think it'll be within the next, you know, nine to 10 years.
1: Excellent. I just have one more question about the flight attendant. Is she still with us? Um, And if so, have you talked to her? If not, have you talked to family members or anybody who might have been friends with her?
2: The flight attendant, her name is Tina Mucklow, is still around. She's actually, uh, she doesn't really communicate with anybody. I've reached out to her a few times, but she has never uh, returned my call. She's butt dialed me a couple of times. But uh, so obviously she, I I know she's getting my messages and stuff, you know, and and I've called and just left a few messages. I'm not hounding her or anything, but she is working with a, um, on a major Hollywood movie that's being put out, uh, related to the skyjacking, which I know is coming out sometime in the future. Uh, so I know she's signed up as a consultant with, with that production house. So she's just not talking. That's going to be part of, you know, that's going to be part of her agreement anyway, with the, with the production company, because they've essentially purchased her rights. Uh, the pilot, uh, you know, there was the captain of the jet who has passed away, uh, Uh he's he's long gone. But uh the co-pilot is a guy named Bill Radicek And Bill Radicek actually is the guy who did really the flying of the jet and everything else. He was the main guy as far as that goes in the in the cockpit. Uh Bill's still around. He's also signed on as part of this movie. I I I have talked to Bill on a handful of occasions and asked him quite a few questions about this. Uh so that's you know, that's kind of cool to talk to the guy who was the actual pilot and kind of relay to me stuff that he recalls you know he was on the flight deck so he never saw db cooper never heard db cooper except you know via the interphone uh because you know he's he was in the front obviously cooper stayed in the back uh also there is a you may recall that i mentioned that db cooper sat in the very back of the jet so this was a 727 that had you know uh three seats and then an aisle and then three seats And D.B. Cooper was sitting in the the middle of the three seats on the right-hand side of the jet. He was the only one sitting there. And then on the left-hand side of the jet, there was one student, one 20-year-old college student sitting in in the back on the other side. So there's just those two in the very back row. That college student, he was 20 years old at the time, Is a guy named Bill Mitchell. Bill Mitchell's still around. I know Bill Mitchell as well. In fact, uh, we have a big annual convention called CooperCon that takes place in Portland, Oregon, uh, every year uh for a few days. Um, the weekend before Thanksgiving times up with when the skyjacking took place. But at the last CooperCon, this last November, um, I, you know, Bill Mitchell, I actually interviewed Bill Mitchell on stage and talked to him about, you know, what his recollections were and, and everything else. And Bill Mitchell actually, even though they didn't know the jet was being skyjacked, he actually paid quite a a bit of quite a bit of attention to to D.B. Cooper. He actually kind of sized this guy up. And the reason why he sized the guy up is because, you know, Bill Mitchell then was a 20 year old college student. You know, D.B. Cooper is this 45 year old guy and. He had the flight attendant sitting with him the entire time and the flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, was 23 years old at that time, you know, an an attractive woman, of course. So Bill Mitchell was kind of eyeballing the dynamic and he was just thinking, you know, what's this, you know, attractive 23 year old flight attendant who's much closer to my age doing Spending all of her time talking with this old geeky guy, you know, so he cut, Bill was kind of, sort of offended by it. You know, he's kind of like, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I'm worthy of some attention. So, so because of that, he kind of, you know, was sort of eyeballing Cooper and paid a lot of attention to him and noted number of things, not realizing what was going on. It Was only after they landed in Seattle, of course, and he walked off the jet with the other passengers that the light bulb went off and they they heard. You guys have been skyjacked. And it was a few minutes later where he realized, wait a minute, the dude who skyjacked the jet was the dude sitting in the back row with me. So, so Bill Mitchell's kind of a cool person to talk to about this, uh, about the skyjacking and D.B. Cooper himself. So it's, in that sense, it's a lot of fun. And it really becomes a fun thing to explore. The thing though, is that, you know, Bill Mitchell's now 70, 71 years old. You know, obviously several people have passed on since then. And, you know, this is it. I mean, this is our last best golden opportunity to talk to some of these people, some of these firsthand witnesses before, you know, there's just too much time that has passed for, for all the obvious reasons. So, uh, so in that sense, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of value in sort of making a real solid push as I'm doing right now to see if we can get this thing buttoned up, this case buttoned up and this mystery solved while uh, we well, still got a few people hanging around that can actually attest to who D.B. Cooper was and what he looked like and everything else.
1: God, uh, you, you, you got me hooked now. I said I had one more question. I lied. I, I, this is my last question. W- what did they describe his demeanor to be?
2: D.B. Cooper uh, was uh, cool as a cucumber. Uh, and importantly to note, he wasn't some badass dude, you know, swearing or anything else. Uh, He didn't swear at all. He was actually, you know, all things considered, very courteous to the to the flight attendants. Uh, But he was cool. He was in control. Again, sort of James Bond-esque in a certain way. Uh, It is notable. One of the things that I've considered is you remember when he, you know, initially issued his demands to the flight attendant sitting next to him. He very famously said at the end of the note, no funny stuff or I'll do the job. And I think that that line in and of itself is a clue. I think it gives us a peek inside the mind of D.B. Cooper. To me, when I hear a line like no funny stuff or I'll do the job, it tells me that D.B. Cooper actually was probably outside of his element, that he wasn't a career criminal, that he felt somewhat uncomfortable about doing this. It's interesting that he spoke Euphemistically, I mean, this was a threat that was, you know, obviously enveloped in euphemism. He didn't say, hey, listen, you know, you guys do what I want or I'm going to basically blow everybody the F up. You know what I'm saying? You know, or, or, you know, unless you want a bullet in your head, do this shit or, you know, whatever. He's no funny stuff or I'll do the job. So I think there are a lot of little things that we can kind of pick out a lot of little clues that we can kind of put together that collectively tell a story point to who db cooper was but on measure the witnesses to a person have said that the guy was calm the guy was cool seemed to be in control he wasn't rude or discourteous to anybody uh that said you know he wanted the two hundred thousand dollars didn't want any problems and jumped from the jet and as far as we know left everybody alone after that
0: amazing well incredible work eric thank you very much and uh You mentioned that there's a, did you say there's a new documentary coming out next month that you're in?
2: Yeah, uh, I believe it's next month. I'm a part of it. Uh, I don't, you know, I I think it's a docu series. Uh, It's going to be on one of the major streaming services. I'm bound by an NDA. So I can't really say, I have no one said I could say anything yet as far as that goes, but I, I did see, I received an email related to an individual who I believe is part of it as well. So, so we'll see what it's about. Uh, You know, I I think it focuses more on kind of the personalities involved with the hunt for D.B. Cooper and and everything. I I don't know how much it's really going to get into sort of like the stuff that I really do in terms of the research and scientific analysis and that kind of stuff. But uh, so I can't really speak to it any any more than that. But but uh, yeah, that'll be coming out. uh, My understanding is sometime in June and I'll be interested to see it just as I'm sure a lot of other people will be interested to see it.
1: Well, I am now inter- interested in seeing it. You have uh, you've converted me to a DB Cooper fan, so I will uh, forever um, be uh, loyal to your your quest to find out who DB Cooper uh, is and was. And when you were talking about. A movie based on. I realize why I don't like DB Cooper is I don't like Treat Williams. I never liked the actor Treat Williams, and he played DB Cooper, and that's been just rolling around in my head subconsciously. It just came out, and it felt, it feels great. It feels great. It's not that I hate DB Cooper. I just hate Treat Williams.
2: Yeah, that was kind of a, a hokey, hokey Hollywood attempt at kind of you know having fun with it. There's another uh, another movie, uh, Bigfoot and DB Cooper uh, that's, you know, I think kind of a cult classic, you know, from probably that time as well. So, but, uh, you know, and I, I don't know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what this movie is going to be about. I mean, I think obviously when you deal with historical events like this, it's it's a little touch and go. I mean, some of them just kind of get kind of crazy and just sort of totally off the reservation, but other ones like Titanic, for example, you know, I think part of what made Titanic a good movie Uh, was the fact that it was largely historically accurate in terms of how they put together the ship and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, Jack and Rose, you know, the main characters were fictitious. But other than that, sort of the series of events and some of the comments and things that people made, like the captain and so forth. and, And again, obviously, the ship itself was accurate. And so that, to me, it actually made it a very interesting and good movie. So I'm hoping... That, with respect to this D.B. Cooper movie, uh, that it's historically accurate because it's, you know, that's sort of the downside of being an expert on this kind of stuff is that I immediately recognize the little flaws and errors and things like that. And they kind of just sit in the back of your mind and they kind of just serve to kind of annoy me, you know? <laughs> Uh, but uh, whereas most people probably wouldn't recognize it. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what's what the story is with that. I'm not involved with that movie at all, so it'll be interesting when all of a sudden.